Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So it's time for more podcast gold. Where are we this week, Mark? We are May 2009. This is a special in which you talk to the great Paul Denoyer about his fabulous book, In the City, A Celebration of London. And there it is. <laughs> there it magic. I just so what a coincidence. Yeah, we're reading it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a fantastic book. So Paul, who's an old pal of ours from, you know, Q and Mojo and Word and stuff, Paul grew up in Liverpool during the whole Beatles Liverpool boom, moved to London when he was working with the enemy. And he became really interested in the small faces and the kinks and Kilburn and High Roads and Squeeze and Madness. And he realised they were all part of a specifically London storytelling tradition. You know, they all got echoes of musical. So in the book, he traces back through beyond the roots of musical to the broadside ballads. Do you remember that bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It's, I love all that stuff. It's a kind of Victorian, uh, Georgian thing, an age where people would sing the news walking yep. down the street, just sing it set to music and sell the sheet music, as it were, in the lyrics. And people wrote songs for condemned people who were at, at hand. Oh, yeah, so, particularly know. popular, yes. Very yes. popular, really Well, they'd, they'd sell them at the gatherings of the, yeah. where there are people being hanged. That's right. That's right. So you take it away as a little bit of a See, that's where that's when there was an outlet for the music business, wasn't it? I know. Then it really <laughs> hangings. Oh. Whatever happened to them? Yeah, bring back hangings. Spotify the... destroyed it all. <laughs> I suppose, you huge know. market. I they know. Used to, used to do so well at hangings, and now you make nothing out of streaming. Nothing. No, it's virtually gone out of fashion. It's almost unfashionable, isn't it? It's almost looked down on. But no, there's tons about musical, and there's uh, all sorts of devious ways that musical had of making money. There's a character called uh, Champagne Charlie. Oh, yes. And uh, Champagne Charlie, I remember this, uh, Champagne Charlie songs, sang songs about particular types of drink, and he was sponsored by the breweries and distilleries yeah. that made them. That's <laughs> genius. Right, this is kind yeah. of, you know, this is one 18th century, 19th century product placement, you know. And Paul notes that, uh, you know, Londoners were, were very much related to the Barrow Boy costermonger characters, their musical identity, that whole thing about the cheeky chappy. Yeah. And the modern equivalents being people like Gary Kemp, you know. And also the swell, which I forgot about. Yeah, The guy absolutely. who dressed up in these glad rags. In order to kind of do go out for a bit of spot for social climbing, I'm Burlington Bertie from Bow. Yeah, yeah. I'm and Burlington he... Bertie. I rise at ten thirty. Oh god, that's what a great it. song. And he anyway. makes a connection between that and kind of Steve Strange and the, and the Romantics. You know, it's it's really it's really good. And lovely stuff about Archer Street near Wimble Street, where all the uh, oh the yes used to gather 
with the drumsticks and their instruments in order to be picked it, it, for to be the picked band up. that yeah. night. Isn't and that do, you know, do you know that was still going on in the early days of the Shadow? Okay. I think Jet Harris, I think, probably got the gig with the shadows by turning, well, turning up at Archer Street, Street and milling about yeah, with the guitar. Isn't that amazing? It's an extraordinary story. It's a great book. Oh, and Paul, a... Paul Denoyer, you know, once you can get a word out of him. <laughs> once you, yeah, we, we basically, you just, just, you know, just start him up and he goes. It's brilliant. And, and it ends, because Big Paul ends with, uh, you know, the stage school girls, you know, Lily, Lily Allen, and then, and then Grime which he thinks is the contemporary uh, update on musicals. So that's your know, Dizzy Rascal and Wiley and Lady Sovereign and Tinchy Strider. It's fantastic. Amazing travel. 200 years of music, 39 minutes. It entertains, it educates. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, this is David Hepworth. Welcome to a special Word podcast about music in London. Paul Denoyer is an associate editor of Word. He's previously written in his book Wondrous Place about Liverpool, the city of his birth. His new book, In the City, is about music in the place where he spent most of his working life, London. We talked in the Word office and I started by asking him how he felt to divide his time between the two cities. All my life I've wanted to be on a book jacket saying I divide my time between. <laughs> uh, but I do now, now that my kids are relatively uh, grown up and um, I'm no longer working in an office and of course nowadays one has email and the internet and so forth. So I don't actually physically have to live in one place the way that I used to. And uh, So I have a little flat up in Liverpool on the, uh, on the waterfront overlooking the, um, overlooking the docks and the uh, Welsh mountains in the background. It's wonderful. So have you got a different perspective on London now that you're not living in it all the time? Yes, I always did because even when I was based in London um, for work and so on, um, I was still going back to Liverpool at least every other weekend. And so my, my, my sense of both cities was always, I think, heightened in a way. You know how when you go abroad, as soon as you land abroad, uh, your response to everything is, is slightly heightened because um, everything is just that little bit strange to you. The, the, t the cars people are driving, the advertising billboards, the way people are talking, everything is slightly strange. And all my life I've gone through a mild form of this, arriving at Euston Station in London or arriving at Lime Street Station in Liverpool, always feeling this cultural dislocation for the first half an hour or so because nothing is quite the same as the world that I've just left two and a half hours previously. So, um, so to some extent, I'm always looking at London through the eyes of an outsider and I'm always looking at Liverpool through the eyes of, um, uh, of an outsider until I gradually acclimatise again. So when you were talking to publishers about, about doing a book on London and music, what, what were the elements you were putting to the, to the, to the, the forefront? You know, well, what, what, you know, because some people might say, well, it's very difficult to say anything about London and music because London is so huge and music is so various that there are very few strands to it. Yes. Well, right from the start, I thought I won't attempt to write um, the entire history of music that's made in London. Uh, in, in a sense, most music, most English music is made in London because it's where the music industry is, it's where most of the studios are and so forth. But what I was interested in myself was music which had a specific... Uh, stamp of London. And I do remember that when I was a kid growing up in Liverpool, although I was surrounded by the, the great mythology of the Beatles and so forth, I personally had a really strong affection for uh, the Kinks and the Small Faces. They were, they were my two favourite pop bands when I was a child. 
and later this, um, they were succeeded by um, Ian Jewelry. When I first came down to London, uh, pub rock was um, taking off. I used to follow around Kilburn and the High Roads, Ian Jewelry's band. And slowly in my mind, the Kinks, the Small Faces, Ian Jewelry began to um, represent a kind of pattern of something that was distinctively London. And um, thinking about it, I thought... They're great storytellers to some extent, um, and people kept telling me, well, of course, what they've all got in common is this thing called Music Hall, uh, which I didn't really know except through these slightly cheesy nostalgia shows used to get on TV in those day, in the, back in those days, you know. Um, but I, I gradually began to understand the link between Ray Davis and Music Hall or um, Small Faces and the East End culture. So those things began to uh, fascinate me, and I began to research them a little bit more. And from the, um, I, I just developed a sense of London as being um, a place where a particular kind of storytelling pop song came from. Squeeze and Madness were the great, uh, the great later examples, I thought. And um, the more I looked into it, the more I thought... Actually, this, this goes back way before the musical. This probably goes back to the, um, the broadside sellers. These were the characters who marched through the streets singing the news of the day in topical ballads. And particularly having done a similar kind of book about Liverpool, I was in a position to spot the contrasts. This didn't really happen in Liverpool because... London is unique. London is the place where all the news comes from. There was a great need in London to broadcast the news because it's where the palace was, it's where royalty, it's where uh, parliament was, um, it's where all the great writers and thinkers and so on were based. So there was a great demand and appetite in London for the news. And um, I think a certain type of London song came out of, came out of that old broadside tradition. Yes, because you talk about also about, about people used to write... Um write songs for condemned people, didn't they? It, uh, <laughs> you know, you very vividly bring that, that stuff to life in the early part of the book, you know, that the, uh, the, the fascination of the mob for the, you know, the spectacle of execution. Oh, everybody loved a good hanging, yes. <laughs> and um, this was one of the great uh, inspirations for the songwriters. They, did, they tended not to be um, um, composers. What they did was they'd just pick up some, a piece of folk music, an old folk song, usually from the countryside, you know, from time immemorial, they would have a stock of tunes and they would just write new lyrics for them every day according to, um, tailored for the events of the day. And the most popular events for the public were the, um, the executions at um, Tyburn, where Marble Arch is now. It's free entertainment, wasn't it? Free entertainment, or outside of uh, Newgate, where the Old Bailey is now. These were great scenes of, uh, and um, uh, Smithfield, Bartholomew's Fair and so on. These were places of great popular entertainment. Uh, but executions were... Executions were um, very well attended, and what one particular... They used to love the gory, blood-soaked ballads um, describing the, the um, dastardly murders which had been committed. But a, a sideline, a kind of sentimental sideline, was the alleged um, um, uh, last-minute confessions of the accused who would look back with remorse upon the <laughs> heinous crimes and plead for forgiveness and, uh, and look forward to redemption in the arms of their saviour and so forth. And this went down very well with the crowd. The, uh, the funny thing was, though, that these last-minute confessions all seemed to have been written the week before. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all printed up and ready to go on the day of the execution. So this kind of mix of, you know, savagery and sentiment and media exploitation is, was, was in place a long, long time ago, wasn't it? Ab ab absolutely. And uh, in the end of public executions in 18-whatever-it-was, 
it must have been a great blow for that uh, for that industry. And so I said, the music industry at the time probably said that public, uh, private executions are killing music. <laughs> <laughs> It's extraordinary because I, I was looking at this this weekend and also looking at Peter Aykroyd's biography of London, you oh, know, yeah, yeah. which is, is, is some similar themes in the sense that places in London return to their ancient yes. use. You know, the, yes, the Soho exists pretty much as it did 200, 300 years ago, albeit different in lots of respects. But, uh, you know, pe- people pursue the same trades, the same strange thing seems to go on in the same places. That's right. I mean, Ackroyd explores this in far more depth than I'm able to, but um, I do love the sense that uh, occasional, occasional physical sites within London seem to retain some ghostly imprint. Um, palimpest is the great Ackroyd word, this kind of faint imprint of, um, of subsequent occurrences on the site. I'm particularly drawn to the fact that um, the area that's now rather obliterated by Centrepoint is the old parish of St. Giles. St. Giles's church is still there. Uh, but if you notice, there's a little stumpy remnant of a street leading from St. Giles uh, called Denmark Street, which is the historic centre of the British music industry. This is Britain's Tin Pan Alley, in effect. And this was, from time immemorial, the most crime-infested black spot of London, as was the area just down the street, at um, Seven Dials, which is where the music publishing industry began as well. And that in its day was a place that um, no respectable person would ever venture. And so uh, the British music industry has its roots in the most uh, deplorable areas of London. It was, a, it was not a job for a respectable person. Let's talk about musical, um, because, you know, as you said, you, most people tend to only know about musical nowadays, even, well, people of my vintage, from, you know, the good old days on the television, yes, but yes. these things being revived, uh, you know, as a piece of popular light entertainment in the 60s and, and the 70s. But, you know, musical, d- describe what an evening at the musical was like. I and mean, we're quite near here where one of... Uh, London's main musicals was, wasn't it, on uh, on Upper Street? Um, uh, Collins's, Collins's yes. on the Islington Green. Yes. Uh, so, you know, what would... It was more like a kind of... More like clubbing than the theatre, wasn't it? If people went yes, and sat that's, at long that's, tables. Yes, it's not a bad analogy, actually. Um, the, the, the earliest musicals in the, in the began in the mid-19th century, and they were fairly crude affairs. It was basically landlords of um, pubs would just try and extend their custom by building a big shed-like extension at the back of the pub. And they would serve drink, usually along long trestle tables, with a raised platform at one end as a stage. And the chairman, or the the MC, um, uh, had the job of not only introducing the acts, but of encouraging people to drink. Yes. Drink up, drink more. And um, um, it was really just an extension of the pub trade. And... um, it's interesting how many how many songs of the early musical were about drink as well. There's a great one of the great stars of the early musical was George Laban, who became uh, known as Champagne Charlie, and all of his songs were sponsored by breweries and wine merchants. He would he would hymn the praises of uh, various types of alcoholic beverage, all paid for by the breweries. <laughs> so it wasn't a kind of pure age at all, you know. No, not not in the least. It was a very. It, it, it seems um, it seems quite quite opposite to our received notion of the Victorians as rather stiff-backed, um, prurient people. Uh, the musical was certainly very bawdy and um, often often really irreverent as well. But um, it was a kind of mob music form, and the mob, you know, the, the mob... The mob comes from the word mobile. It means they move, they're fickle, you can't, you can't pin them down. And the mob can turn in any direction. At one point they are 
murderously patriotic at the other time at the other times they're dangerously revolutionary you can never quite you never quite know where the london mob is going to go next and and musical captures that um that swirling quality as well because also the the great songs of those musical artists you know some of which people still know today i don't know my old man said follow the fans yes. stuff like yeah. that you know it, it it really kind of hit the nerve of how people lived, didn't it? You know, it, 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 it in the words of Morrissey, said, said a lot of them about <laughs> their about, life, about didn't my it? Life. Yes. Um, you know, what, what are the other ones? What are the other uh, notable ones, that are performers or, or pieces of work of that time? Well, uh, Mary Lloyd, who, uh, who popularised that song my own, about my old man following the van, was a great um, kind of weather vane of public opinion. Um, they would sing. They would sing things like, um, "It's the rich what gets the pleasure, it's the poor what gets the blame," and um, and um, songs about the evil man who waters the workers' beer and so on. But then, when there was a when a war came along, they would suddenly switch from being um, radical insurrectionary towards being uh, fiercely um, uh, patriotic. And um, to use a word which was coined in the musicals, jingoistic. Right. Uh, the word jingoism comes from a musical song. Uh, we've got the we've got the we've got the arm. We've got the ships. We've got the men. And by jingo, we've got the money too, or something like that. You know. So uh, musical was very much the social commentary of its day, and in that sense, it seemed to me to be of a of a continuing line from the broadside um, sellers. Who effectively, what musical did was to bring indoors the kind of. Uh, news which used to be hawked around on the streets outside. And there were an extraordinary number of musicals, weren't there, in London? There were thousands of them, uh, a vast number. We, to this day, it's interesting that we tend to think of musical as a kind of cockney thing. It wasn't exclusively. There were musicals in every sizable town around the country, but through the sheer force of numbers, because even then, of course, London was bigger than anywhere else. But even so, London had a, an intensity of musicals, uh, especially in the East End and uh, just south of the river, that, um, that the, uh, the Cockney style of music hall came to dominate. And to this day, when we think of music hall, we do tend to think of pearly kings and costermongers and so forth. And that kind of, uh, that lairiness, that, uh, you know, that spiviness, <laughs> that, that uh, as you say in the book, people still, people outside London really associate with London. Yes, that comes was... Comes from there, doesn't yes, it? Yes, the, uh, the, the Cockney wide boy, the barrow boy. Um, it, it just struck me that... I mean, certainly growing up in, in, in Liverpool, I, I'd, I'd always noticed that um, there was a kind of stereotypical figure of the docker in Liverpool. Not many people in Liverpool ever were on the docks, but they kind of took the docker as being their mascot, their emblem. They all thought, in a way, we're all, we're all kind of like dockers deep down. We're a bit light-fingered, but we're lovable, and we're wise-cracking, and um, we're not nine-to-five, and all kinds of characteristics associated with dockers. So what you see developing in the, uh, the days of Music Hall is that the Cockney audience wants a kind of star up there on the stage that reflects back at them their um, preferred image of themselves. And um, just as in Liverpool, I always thought the, the docker was that kind of civic mascot. In London, it seemed to be the, the, the costermonger. Costermongers were the um, street sellers, the barrow boys selling fruit and veg, uh, form themselves into these tight-knit East End communities, um, ceremonially led by pearly kings and queens, and and their characteristic was that they were they were quick-witted. They lived on their wits. They lived in the um, they lived in the margins of buying and selling all the while. And you can see how seamlessly this would lead to later stereotypes of the, um, the loudmouth city trader, the barrow boy. He was often himself an Essex lad, the kind of inheritor of the East End Cockney 
tradition. Um, but this was a great stock in trade of the uh, of the music hall act. People like uh, Gossil and Harry Champion um, uh, on the female side, uh, Mary Lloyd herself. These were these were costermonger superstars in a way, uh, ghetto fabulous as I call them in the book. And they um, they were side by side. But the other great um, stereotype was the swell, who was generally a person of low origins. Most musical stars were themselves from the people, so to speak. They were of the same. Um, they came from the same streets as their audience uh, but one of the favourite characters was the swell who was a toff who dressed up in extravagant fashion and paraded up and down and pretended to be on um, intimate terms with the Prince of Wales and so forth and this was another great favourite of the musical crowd. And, and I suppose that's, that's uh, something you can trace into the future, into the 60s and 70s and 80s in mods and new romantics and you know, that in London you know, the idea, you, you dress up right, you can, you can be accepted as, as you'd like to be. Well, this is one of the, one of the things I found very romantic about London uh, down the centuries, was that, um, all, all, unlike almost anywhere else, London is where lots of very rich people live very close to lots of very poor people. It's where the highest in the land, the, uh, the royal family and the aristocracy, lived cheek by jowl with um, the London mob. And so the two were observing each other, probably very warily, from very close quarters, um, down the centuries, and unlike the poor of any other part of the kingdom, the London poor were, could see the, the toffs, the aristocracy, at close quarters and could ape them, and, if they were brave enough, could um, imitate them. And there was a great tradition in London of the, uh, the working-class dandy, the one who thought, to hell with my ascribed status, I will dress up as sharply as I can, I will strut along with the best of them, and... Um, I like to think, I can't prove it, but I like to think that a lot of London mod culture has its roots in this, um, it's kind of the Sam Weller character in the, the Pickwick Papers, the, uh, the man who thinks, I'm as good as anyone as long as I can look the part yeah. and um, strut around. And the great musical epitome of this is um, the song Burlington Bertie from Bo, who is himself, uh, he's a man with, which is actually sung by a female impersonator, strangely enough, but um, he is a man who's got no money at all. He's, it's completely show. He's somehow scrounged together an outfit and will parade around Piccadilly, Mayfair, with the knobs, the nobility. But uh, at the end of the day, he has to slink back to Bow in the East End because that's where he's from. And there will still be people doing that today, won't they? You know, that if you go to, to you know, London nightclubs, they're not necessarily the poshest places, are they? You know what I mean? They're just where, they're where everybody meets. You know, they're a kind of odd melting pot, aren't they? Yes, and that's, that's one of the, that's one of the really exciting things about uh, London, and you know, as a provincial and coming from a pretty much exclusively working class northern city, it's very interesting to see that and that tradition of putting on your glad rags. And um, the most eloquent spokesman I found for this uh, way of life when I was interviewing for the book turned out to be Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the Kemp brothers who were in their day the sound of Young Islington. They grew up in the streets just around the corner from this office. Interestingly, as he says, at the very point at which the Islington middle class meets the beginnings of the East End working class, there was one road, the Essex Road, and, uh, which was almost a Berlin Wall of social division. Uh, and they lived on um, the far side of those tracks, so to speak. But they grew up with the knowledge that um, if a boy dressed up, dressed smartly, dressed sharply, then he could infiltrate the echelons of the, um, of the better off and develop this kind of fierce working-class pride that, um, um, that um, bowed its head to no man. Yeah. Let's talk about the period between, between the wars, um, when you, you deal in the book quite a lot with um, 
jazz and, and dance bands. And uh, yes. very interested, you, you, you write about Archer Street. Tell, yes. us, tell, tell us about Archer Street. Archer Street, uh, which is, is, of course, still there, it's, um, it's a side street that runs between, let me see, uh, I think Rupert Street and Windmill Street. Uh, this is in Soho. In Soho. Um, and this was historically the centre of the um, live music trade. Jazz music, in, jazz music really arises in Britain and in London at the end of the uh, First World War. begins actually with a, a visit to the Hammersmith Palais from the... Um, uh, from the Mississippi, original Dixieland Mississippi, uh, original Dixieland jazz band, what they called? I think they were called that. Um, uh, and then it, uh, it takes hold in, uh, in London, and the jazz musicians, and the, all of the big arm, vast army of musicians who played in the dance orchestras would congregate by tradition in Archer Street, and they would, they would hold their musical instruments with them. Drummers would have their drumsticks sticking out of their back pockets, and the agents who were hiring musicians would simply go along uh, Archer Street and say, you, you, and you, and assemble the orchestra for the night that way. And this persisted um, right up until up until the uh, the 1950s, um, even as early as even in the early career of someone like a rock and roll like Tommy Steele, they would still gather around. And certainly Ronnie Scott, in his early days as a tenor saxophonist, they would gather around Archer Street and hope to get picked on the casual labour system for a, a gig that night. There is a wonderful TV program that was done about 20 years ago during the BBC Two jazz season which I'd love to see turn up on uh, YouTube, which was just somebody's old home mov- movie footage of Archer Street, wow. of a load of people milling around in Archer Street. Wow. And they ran this in Ronnie Scott's and got Humphrey Littleton and George Malley and yes. Ronnie Scott and whoever yes. were around at the time, just look at it and say, and talk about all the people who were on the film. Yes. And it was absolutely classic. Yes. Um, you know, just just happened that somebody shot a bit of uh, bit of cine film at the yes. time. It's very rare. But yes. it's... Uh, no, so what, what comes over very well in that is that the, um, the, the guys, the jazz players, made their living in dance bands but wanted to play jazz, didn't they? So there was this perpetual tension that was all these guys in Britain wanted to play, play jazz and there wasn't really a market for it, was there? No, the, the, the big market for live music in, um, uh, after the First World War was for, as I say, the, the dance orchestras, which um, who had a good, um, there was a good living to be had because um, hotels and even the bigger West End restaurants always had live music. Uh, if you went, to, went up west for a meal, there would be a dance orchestra somewhere behind the palm plants in the corner, yeah. and then there'd be a bit of dancing later on and so forth. But this employed a vast army of musicians, which, for which there was no longer any call. But the poignant thing was that the younger ones were increasingly listening to harder-edged types of jazz coming out of America. And they were, t- they, they were understandably tired of playing this, to them, slightly cheesy music for middle-class people to glide around the ballrooms to. And um, particularly in the later years of the war and after the war, many of them were going over to um, America. There was this wonderful institution called Geraldo's Navy. Geraldo was... Um, himself an East End band leader. He wasn't called Geraldo yes, at all. what was his name? <laughs> Alf Bloggs or yes. something. I forget now. But um, he used to hire the orchestras who would play on the transatlantic liners to New York. And by this means, people like Ronnie Scott and Johnny Dankworth um, got to travel to New York and were exposed at first hand to the real McCoy. They would, they would go to Birdland and see Charlie Parker or whatever it may be. And they developed this taste for... The, the new jazz, the bebop, the modernist jazz, and they brought it back to London. And that post-war jazz scene, which they founded rather in opposition to the 
to the trad jazz, which is also very popular, um, is, is tremendously important in terms of the later development of rock music. People like Mick Jagger will always say, well, what we did, the, the rhythm and blues that we did, it really traces its ancestry to that jazz scene. And I think the main, the breakthrough was that here you had white London boys who were completely unselfconscious about um, imitating the music of black America. They had no qualms about doing it whatsoever. They were far less self-conscious about in doing that than white Americans would have been. Yeah, I suppose definitely. to us, black America was so distant, so exotic, there was really no embarrassment about going up on stage pretending you were from the cotton fields of Alabama or whatever it may be. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. The other interesting thing about the jazz players was, that, is, I think you say, that they ended up, these guys playing on Rock with the Cavemen by Tommy Steele and things like that. You know, see, so you've got those, uh, those 50s pop records coming out of English Tin Pan Alley. Well, yes, in the, in the mid-50s when the British music industry uh, of Tin Pan Alley uh, cottoned on to this uh, new rock and roll coming from America... What's hard for us to recall is that at that stage there was no pool of rock musicians to be employed in Britain. There were, there were no rock musicians. We had the, the very first rock singers, uh, like um, uh, Tommy Steele. Again, there were only a handful of those. But there was nobody to play on their records. Nobody. The, the nearest that we had were the jazz musicians, and the jazz musicians themselves despised rock music. To them, this was infantile. I mean, if you're used to the, um, you know, to the rarefied cold fusion of bebop, then being asked to play rock with the caveman, <laughs> stalagmite, stalactite, hold your baby really tight, to them was utterly demeaning, but it was ready money. They so they would troop into the studio, <laughs> they, would, they, would, um, they would back um, some, um, uh, some new boy sensation, usually signed by this uh, fascinating character, Larry Palms. Uh, they would they would back him, kind of holding the, metaphorically holding their noses as they played this rubbish. Um, but from um, but after a few years, a kind of pool of really really talented British rock musicians starts to develop in the back room. Those guys like Clem, Clem Catini, uh, Jimmy Page was actually one of that first generation of uh, backing uh, backing musicians that came through and formed the core of the London session man market as well. So, again, you, we touched on it earlier, the, 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 the blues, um, so-called blues boom, you know, that kind of arose from the Thames Delta, didn't it, the, uh, from Richmond and around there. It, 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 um, you know, Andrew Oldham always says that he only found the Rolling Stones because his mother lived in Hampstead and, and the Rolling Stones li were, were playing in, in Richmond. In the Station uh, Hotel in Richmond? In the Station Hotel. And there was and remains a train line that the North, goes the North London line. The North London Still line loops around. That yeah. goes uh, around there, and so he thought, well, rather than have a dull Sunday afternoon at home in the early sixties, I'll pop down there and see this group. Yes, that's how, how British Rail invented British Rail, <laughs> <laughs> which is an amazing accident, isn't it? But, but this, but this whole region of kind of, I suppose, southwest London, you know, reaching out to Ripley, where Eric Clapton came from, yes. you know, yes. proved an incredibly rich area, didn't it? It did, yes. Kingston Art College seems to be something of a crucible for, for this kind of thing. Uh, and a, and a, little, a little cluster of clubs like the, uh, the, the Crawdaddy was the club which was um, held in the back room of the Station Hotel, which, now, which, which I visited uh, at the weekend, actually. is now tragically renamed The Bull for no reason. And uh, it doesn't have, and I can't believe this, it doesn't have so much as a plaque 
this, uh, this, this station hotel, site of the Crawdaddy Club, is surely, along with the cavern, which itself no longer exists in its original form, is surely one of the um, yeah. cradles of British rock music because not only did the Stones have their residency there, um, the Yardbirds and all of that generation cut their teeth in that club. Nothing, there's nothing to even suggest the station hotel existed on this spot, which is a great shame. Somebody ought to do something about it, I think. So, so, so what, what part did London play in that kind of, that period of, you know... I think the... the well, the, 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 the London was already the, fo- the focus of the, of the jazz scene, both the trad jazz scene and the modernist uh, jazz scene, two factions which were forever at one another's throats. Um, but from the jazz scene came an offshoot called Skiffle. Uh, Skiffle was... Um, Skiffle was mainly played by uh, Chris Barber's band. Chris Barber was one of the great, um, one of the great avatars of the early jazz or the post-war jazz scene. Still around now. Still around. Played yes. with Nick Lowe recently. Marvelously so. Yes. Um, and Skiffle, which uh, exists in many forms, but their particular form of Skiffle was a kind of, a kind of rough and ready, um, deep South rural jug band um, variant. And it was treated as a bit of a novelty. It was in the middle of a in the middle of a rather demanding jazz set for some light relief. Lonnie Donegan, who was a who was a member of Chris Wilder's band, would come up and do his skiffle spot. And uh, more and more, they found, I think, probably to their disappointment, that the younger ones were beginning to enjoy the skiffle bit more than they were enjoying the jazz uh, around the skiffle. Uh, Lonnie Donegan enjoys this freak novelty hit, the Rock Island Line, which becomes wonder of wonders hit in America in a, one of those classic Coles to Newcastle reversals yeah. of the cultural flow um, Lonnie Donegan promptly takes himself off leaves Chris Barber becomes a Skiffle star and Skiffle becomes um, not, it's not exactly rock and roll but it was certainly the, the first music that the next generation cut its teeth on because up in Liverpool and Newcastle and Belfast all of these young kids think well, we can't play anything else, but we can certainly have a go at playing skiffle. You know, it's acoustic music, it's um, pretty easy, it uses homemade instruments and all that. T-chess bass. Yeah. People still had washboards. Wash, when, every, when every scholarly had a washboard. <laughs> <laughs> People wouldn't, you know, our kids wouldn't even know what a washboard <laughs> was. <laughs> so, um, so skiffle became the, the entry-level music for what would become the first generation of, 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 of British rock bands. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I'm always curious about um, Parallel to Skiffle. There was this, uh, this, was this attempt by Tim Panali to try and do uh, imitation rock and roll, um, go, using, as we said before, jazz musicians because they didn't know where else to turn, and usually, you know, rather rather attractive young boys who had been spotted by Larry Parnes and, be, and were given fictitious new names. You know, Ron Witchley becomes Billy Fury, and um, so on. Um, but that. I'm always curious as to know where that started, and, and I don't know whether you know better, Dave, or somebody knows better, but as far as I can see, it was a record by a guy, a jazz drummer called Tony Crombie called Teach You to Rock, and as far as I can make out, this was the first British rock record. It, cut, it predates Tommy Steele. It, it postdates Skiffle, but Skiffle is a kind of folk tradition to the side. Uh, Teach You to Rock by Tony Crombie is fascinating. Yeah. It's really kind of rotten in a way. It's utterly stiff. <laughs> Nobody can rock to save their lives at this stage. <laughs> but they're having a damn good bash at it. I find it rather quaint. Because that's the thing that sort of changed with the Rolling Stones, wasn't it? The, the Rolling Stones, whether you liked it or not, they could rock, couldn't they? <laughs> they, they, they could, and he had to, they had to doff the hat to, um, to, to Charlie Watts. Yes. I mean, there are lots of elements in the Stones, of course, but one is the complete unselfconsciousness with which Mick Jagger would attempt to be from a Mississippi 
cotton field. I mean, on, on one level, it's, it's an utterly comical conceit that anybody should have the effrontery to do that. But on, the other, but on another level, of course, it so clearly worked uh, in front of an audience that wasn't really too hung up about it. Uh, Andrew Oldham always says he loved the Stones throw it away because, as he cheerfully admits, he knew nothing whatsoever about the blues, um, as far as he's concerned. If it was too scholarly, it was probably not going to be successful. I mean, he just liked the Stones on a purely visceral pop level. Right. But the Stones, you know, they did have this fantastic rhythm section in, in Charlie Watts and, to give him his due, Bill Wyman, who, people who just really, really could... They could swing. So, um, Andrew Oldham on the Stones is a, is a, is a, cl- a classic example of the combination of a manager from one tradition and, and musicians from completely a different one. Uh, I suppose Malcolm McLaren, <laughs> Sex Pistols, is a, is very, it's a similar case, isn't it? You know, this is a very London thing, isn't it? This coming together of uh, a bunch of unfocused talent with some immensely ambitious person who has, has some yes, kind of vision. Yes, uh, this, this was a kind of re- recurring story which I, which I loved and which to me seemed distinctively London, the way in which the raw, unformed musical talents, usually a gang of young boys, sometimes a girl, usually a gang of young boys, will meet uh, a much older man who can act as a mentor to them because London is where the music business is. London is where... The, the state where the theatre is, it's where anybody who is versed in the dark arts of show business has learned their trade, and it's where they're based. It's where Tin Pan Alley is. It's where the West End is. And therefore, one constantly gets this combination of the raw talent and the, the shrewd manipulator who knows how the business works. Whereas the typical scenario out in the provinces was you would have a scuffling beat band. Eventually, they would meet up with the man who ran the carpet shop yes. next door... <laughs> He would become their manager because, A, he had a van, and, B, he had a telephone. <laughs> Therefore, old, old Fred became your manager. And, of course, old Fred was, was you know, to give him his due, he was, he, his heart was in the right place, but he was not cut out to go down to London and do the deals. You know, even Brian Epstein, who was slightly off to the side of that particular stereotype, even Brian Epstein was a child in the, uh, in the, uh, in the woods when he went to, uh, to deal with the London music industry and sign these, um, in retrospect, quite naive deals. But the London boys would generally find somebody like Larry Parnes, who was an impresario. You know, he was a real old-school impresario who believed in putting on a show. And uh, Malcolm McLaren, I think, rather self-consciously liked to model himself on Larry Parnes. So, incidentally, did uh, Andrew Oldham as well. They liked... Andrew Oldham's great hero was the fictional character in the film Espresso Bongo, uh, played by... um, Lawrence Harvey. Lawrence Harvey, yes. Um, uh, Andrew and uh, Malcolm, they love the idea of being the shadowy Svengali, the one who knows all the strokes. Because that's one of the the, the features of punk, isn't it, ironically? You've got these very manipulative manipulative manager figures, didn't you? Jake Rivera and Bernie Rhodes and all these people. They all had one, didn't they? Yes, quite. And yes, they really whether they were or not, but they really liked to think of themselves as the men, the puppet masters. They were part of the act, weren't they? And another lovely echo of the the Larry Parnes era came with McLaren in that all all of his boys were given totally fictitious new names. John Lydon becomes Johnny Rotten. Um, John Devley becomes Sid Vicious, Joe Strummer, etc., etc., etc. That was a pure Larry Parnes um, touch being rather knowingly recreated by a later generation. Now, as the book comes up to date, uh, you you start remarking, possibly with a tone of regret, uh, the the number of uh, people playing a part in this story who are their own manipulators in the sense that they're stage school kids. 
Yes, now that's that's just one of the uh, it's just one of the interesting developments of, I suppose, music generally in this century. Um, and I was thinking about this in t- relation to um, there's a piece coming up in the next issue about the Beatles, and we've all done pieces about the Beatles. And I was thinking about how how much the show business environment has come to resemble the show business environment that the Beatles entered into and and apparently swept away. That world where you had to enter talent shows, where um, cruise ship singers were considered to be as good an artist as, as anybody else, where um, you, would, you would go away and learn your, learn your trade. In other words, you were not expected to be an authentic um, artist who had sprung on forms straight from the streets. We nowadays expect a higher level of artifice from our performers than we have done ever since, ever since the beginnings of rock culture, I suppose, with, with the Beatles. We're going back to a kind of 1950s world now where show business is unapologetically based on artifice. We rather like the fact that we, once again, we have the, the Svengali figures, we have the Simon Cowell figure who is putting the whole package together, who is grooming people. Um, I mean, we're, we're now not embarrassed by the concept of the makeover 10, 20, 30 years ago, everybody would have fiercely denied that they've ever been made over. They are what they are, you know. And now, of course, the makeover is a staple of modern television. You know, there's no, there's no embarrassment about it. I was, t- I, was, I was this, then I became that. Yeah, yeah. Because you talk about people like Lily Allen as a, as a kind of representative of the old blunder tradition, but also with a very self-conscious new twist on that. Yes, well, she's another, another thing that you get from London is the showbiz kid, the person, most provincial um, youths, are themselves the, the children of provincials who did not work in show business, but more and more in London, of course, um, show business replicates itself across the generations, and um, Lily Allen is of showbiz stock on both sides of the family, and as early as whatever she was as a child, she was singing with Joe Strummer and um, her father and um, Alex James. You know, she was in that group, fat, she was singing with Fat Les, in fact, the... Uh, offshoot of Blur and, and, and the Brit, that, that kind of groucho scene. So, you know, there was no innocence involved, like a lot of London children. There was no stage of innocence involved in that story. So what's a great London record that's been made recently? Um, the last truly... Uh, I, I, I try to keep the story up to date, um, but I'm a bit cautious of, of naming things from the last three years because it's always a hostage to fortune and... Um, you know, in a book which you hope is going to be around for a few years, there's nothing as sad-looking as, you know, as the great white hopes of 2006. When you looked back from the vantage point of 2011, you realise that, not to name any names, but, you know, Kate Nash, for example, was very hotly tipped two years ago. Maybe she'll come good, I don't know, but it's, you have to be very wary about tipping that kind of people. But I, what I was most fond of, and I, without naming a specific song, what I'm most fond of is the, the grime scene, that came around a few years ago, it's now moving more into the mainstream, arose from the East, from the East End, mainly around Bow, um, has now moved so much into the mainstream that it's slightly softened and, in fact, has had has spawned two number one hits this year from uh, Dizzy Rascal. Um, and uh, Wiley had his great hit with uh, Wearing My Rolex. Um, the whole, the whole grime scene is so kind of reminiscent of, um, I think, uh, musical. It struck me, uh, l- looking at the names, that um, you, could, you could almost imagine a yellowing a whole poster outside Wilton's musical with these names, yes. like 
<laughs> Dissy Rascal and Lady Sovereign and uh, Chinchy Strider, who himself was just our number one, of course. They look so 19th century and musical, you know, and that's, that's quite story-driven um, music itself. It's often stories of the parts of London that most of the audience would never want to visit for themselves, but it's very much, very much in that tradition, I like to think. Paul Denoy's book, In the City, A Celebration of London Music, is out now, published by Virgin Books. I'm David Hepworth. As ever, if you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, please go for further counselling and like minds to wordmagazine.co.uk. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 